Good morning. I'm Wimala, and today is March 31st, and I have so many squirrels outside running around looking for food. I had to go out and give them some because it's snowing, kind of raining, almost like rain and snow at the same time. It's so wet, and I think the squirrels decided it was time to fatten up again, that <laughs> they needed to start eating to get chunky for the winter. Because uh, I, I think this is the most I've ever seen in my tiny, uh, in front of my tiny patio. I have a big tree, so uh, I've got, I've got <laughs> a mass of squirrels, a, a scurry of squirrels. I think a scurry is the name for a group of squirrels. They, they are confounded by the weather, although this is typical for the Midwest, and this is how we enter spring. We're having snow today. So we know this is our teacher, so it doesn't do any good to be complaining about it, right? This is a teacher on impermanence and how everything is also changing all the time. So, we are still reading in Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree, and it's that impermanence, that constant changing, that is one of the reasons that we, we can see and experience the fact that there's no uh, like undying component of this, of this body. Everything is changing all the time. So. We are, that's the, then that, that is when we think of no self. And then no self is also the teaching on void, uh, voidness, emptiness. No self. And when there's no self, we're really liberated because we're freer to see things as they really are and then find the beauty in that. So we are reading Buddha Dasa, Bhikkhu Bodhi. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, who's no longer living but was a very influential and a great teacher from Thailand. So, fooled again. We're reading, practicing at ordinary times, and here he's giving us information, I think, that's really helpful on a day-to-day -day basis. So the last thing we were reading, he's talking about um, those who have, this is the very end of the last section we read yesterday, those who have thoroughly seen the painful consequences, oops, got to make a few adjustments here, sorry. Those who have thoroughly seen the painful consequences of grasping and clinging will shake their heads <clears throat> because being a person, one must have the dukkha, the suffering of a person. And being a dewa, one must have the suffering of a dewa. And a dewa is a, uh, we, what we would think of as a, sorry, I thought I had turned that off. If we are void, not taking ourselves to be anything at all, then we are neither a person nor a dewa, and the respective dukkha of each is absent. If one is a human being or a dewa, 
following the urgings of grasping and clinging, is it a pleasure? Those who have realized the truth will all shake their heads. Fooled again is the next section. To bring it in more closely, is it worth being a good person? Is it worth being a bad person? If we ask who wants to be a good person, there is likely to be a forest of raised hands. Such people don't yet see that attachment to being a good person means one must have the good person sort of dukkha, in exactly the same way that a bad person will have the dukkha appropriate to a bad person. So suffering, we can suffer to be, if we're attached to being a good person, in exactly the same way that a bad person will have the suffering appropriate to a bad person. When there is grasping and clinging at being, then there is no happiness at all. This is due to one sort of heaviness or another, which is intrinsic to that state of being itself. Some kinds of dukkha do not show themselves openly because of pleasures or distractions that cover them up. Nevertheless, because we are fooled by those pleasures and distractions, we must endure the dukkha, the suffering, of having, being, and gaining, the dukkha of ambitiously or excitedly striving to be this and that. Well, I'm sure hmm, lots of us can think about, oh, how hard do I try to be a good person? In truth, nature fools us into taking on suffering. An obvious example is the dukkha that arises from propagating the species and from giving birth. It fools us so much that people actually volunteer enthusiastically for such labor. If they were to see the truth for themselves, they would never play with these deceptions of nature. Okay, so is it fun being a good person? Is it pleasant being a bad person? Think about it. It's because it's that identity. Well, that's an interesting subject that even propagating the species and giving birth. So, uh, is a deception, a deception of nature. I don't know if I quite like that expression that it's a deception of nature. That is nature, right? Is it fun being a good person? Is it pleasant being a bad person? Think about it. Coming even closer, is it worth being a fortunate person? Is it worth being an unfortunate person? The hasty and circumspect, uncircumspect, are likely to raise their hands immediately, claiming that being fortunate is extremely pleasant. But those who have fully experienced good fortune will shake their heads. One who is fortunate must endure the suffering, the dukkha, of one who attaches to being fortunate, in exactly the same way that the one who is unfortunate must endure the dukkha appropriate to one who cannot bear to be unfortunate. And I think it's clear that it's these labels, it's these things that we get distracted by when we 
take them on as this is who I am, it becomes a burden. It becomes suffering. And it's a, bur- it's a burden to take it on because that means we're clinging to it, being happy. Coming closer still, is it worth being a happy person? Is it worth being an unhappy person? There will be a forest of raised hands here, all asking to be happy people. On the other hand, those who have been happy, who have fully experienced the happiness others are clamoring for, will shake their heads. They know that the happy person endures the dukkha of happiness. You may not understand this point, so let me repeat. People who are happy must experience the suffering of happy people. You must notice that worldlings assume, establish, and attach to the conventions concerning the nature of happiness. One who has money, power, influence, wealth, all the sensual pleasures, and other such things is a happy person. But if we look closely, we will see that there is kind of there is a kind of dukkha appropriate to happy people. These kinds of happiness have hidden fish bones in them. So he's taught, he, uh, even with the more subtle forms of happiness that arise from concentration, samadhi, the meditative attainments, samapati, and the meditative absorptions, jhanas, If the feeling that I am happy arises, then it too will form a fishbone in the flesh of that happiness and will stick in one's throat. Those who grasp at and cling to the happiness of the jhanas and attainment suffer accordingly. And the jhanas are those, what they call the, uh, uh, those are the attainments of meditation, um, the kind of uh, uh, special states where things are blissful and then it goes beyond blissful and joyful. It's the grasping and the clinging to the happiness from that that creates uh, that creates suffering that's according to that. When we know it's because the suffering comes when it doesn't happen again or we can't make it happen at our will or we have those states and then come back to day-to-day life, and it's not, not so great. It doesn't change everything permanently. We're, if we're stuck with it, if we're clinging to it, it creates our suffering. Grasping at Nibbana as being myself or my happiness is impossible. One may, one may say if one wishes that Nibbana or that enlightenment, that awakening, one may wish Uh, One may say if one wishes that Nibbana is a supreme happiness and then attach to Nibbana as being I or mine. One may say I have the happiness of Nibbana or I have attained Nibbana. But these are mere verbalizations. In fact, one who still grasps and clings cannot possibly realize Nibbana. If anyone takes himself or herself to be the enjoyer of Nibbana's happiness, that can only be a counterfeit Nibbana. 
True Nibbana is not of a nature that can be grasped at in this way. So this is really something to think about. I think he makes it very clear. All of these things that we think of as good and happy and uh, productive and wonderful, that they can be full of suffering if that's what we're clinging to, if that's what we identify with. So, we pursue many types of happiness, from that of children, through the happiness of youth, of adults, of the elderly, of the powerful and influential, on up through the happiness of being a dewa, a celestial being, of having meditation absorptions and attainments, until we reach whatever we believe to be the highest happiness. If we ever delusively consider that I am happy, we must suffer accordingly. Those who have realized the truth see this fact. Those who have not are in turmoil, ambitiously and hungrily striving for wealth, power, and sense pleasures. Or, on a higher level, they are greedily striving for insight, meditative absorptions, and attainments. Some push so hard they end up in mental hospitals. That in itself demonstrates the danger of grasping and clinging to happiness. Young children will not understand this point, but those advanced in years should. Birth and death. This is the last section for this chapter, so I'll finish it. Now we'll give some thoughts to another pair of opposites. Is being born a pleasure? Is dying a pleasure? Choose one or the other. Which is more fun, being born or dying? Which is more worthwhile, being a born person or being a dead person? If we really understand Dhamma, we'll shake our heads. We'll want neither birth nor death. However, ordinary people don't want to die. They only want to be born. They want birth without death, and what's more, they want eternal life. Or if they must die, they want to be reborn. This indeed is grasping and clinging. In short, the person born suffers one way, and the person dying suffers another way. Only when there is neither birth nor death, when there is sunyata, will there be an end to dukkha. And sunyata, of course, is this no-self or voidness. Seeing without that self in the way, just seeing the world as it is, seeing truth as it is. Why not amuse yourself by thinking this over when you're lying down, sitting, or walking in the moments when no sense object has made contact? Or when you're doing something or being something, why not try thinking in the way we have described? When you're weary, exhausted, and distressed with being a mother, father, or something else, why don't you ever feel that it isn't much fun? Being a husband, being a wife, being any of the things that I've mentioned, when you're disturbed and upset by that state of being, why don't you ever feel it to feel it 
Why don't you ever feel it to be utterly unpleasant? You still find it enjoyable, even when it brings you to tears. There is a final pair to consider, birth and non-birth. We must reflect and investigate carefully that both birth and non-birth are too much trouble, for neither is void and free. If we cling to not being born, this clinging too is not void. This part concerning birth and non-birth, the final pair, is the hardest to understand and the hardest to practice. We must want neither birth nor non-birth. Through not grasping at or clinging to either of them, there is voidness. Having spoken continually about having and being, of not having and not being, we come to birth and non-birth. Almost a bit immediately we grasp at non-birth. Thus at the final stage our practice must advance to the point where our knowledge of non-birth dissolves without becoming an object of grasping and clinging. Then there appears true sunyata, in which there is neither birth nor non-birth. In other words, true non-birth, the remainderless quenching. This manner of speaking may seem to be quibbling or wrestling back and forth, but the meaning is unequivocal. There is a definite difference between true and false non-birth. So don't cling to the idea that Nibbana is non-birth and is wonderful and amazing in this way and that. And don't attach to the cycles of birth and death. And that's Vata Samsara. What? Vata Samsara as a plethora of fun-filled births. There must be no grasping at or clinging to either side for there to be sunyata and genuine non-birth. The practice during ordinary times must continually be of this nature. So we practice not even being attached to birth or non-birth. No grasping or clinging to either side for there to be true sunyata and genuine non-birth. A special mention should be made of the higher work of meditation. Kamatana, mental development through the power of concentration, samadhi bhavuna, or contemplation leading to insight. Vipassana. These three terms refer to systematic techniques for understanding the painful consequences of grasping and clinging. Yet these practices still fall under the category of ordinary times, especially in the sense that all practice comes down to being void of attachment. If we still cling to the meditation meditator, the meditator is in our identity. It isn't really meditation yet. In proper meditation, however, the mind isn't disturbed by sense objects. So don't let yourself be born as a meditator. 
Instead, see the voidness of meditation. So, that uh, simple and easy to understand, but probably shocking to a lot of us. And I think he's just taking all the way to the end and making it very clear that the entire thing that we are trying to eliminate is that grasping at and then clinging to an identity, a feeling, a label. And, and it's, we can take it all the way to birth and death and rebirth. It's not just about choices that we make or, uh, you know, the clothes we decide to put on. It's taking everything to just allowing it, allowing us to drop all of those attachments. It's not easy, and I think he's, he's reminding us of how not easy it is to let go of these things. So, I think we have time to sit. So we can sit a bit. And now if you like, just let it let this go. If it's confusing, if it doesn't make sense, if you completely disagree with them, just let it go. Uh, and if it's if it is meaningful to you or resonates, you know, you can let it go too, or you can follow up with more of his teachings or see it. Just use your daily life to see it. See whatever whatever we are attaching to becomes, has its own dukkha, has its own suffering. So, why don't we sit? If you listen, if you're picking up sense objects, you're probably picking up the squirrels wrestling and jumping all over each other. (laughs) Little squeaks, funny little squeaks, that's what that is. But we can let that go. We're going to let the squirrels, the birds, just let it go for right now and just be with your breath. No need to be thinking while we're sitting. If you agree or disagree with uh, Buddha Dasa, he's a very respected teacher. A lot of monastics have trained with him. Uh, but probably his, his teachings are very different and not not favorites of other monastics. So you don't have to make any kind of decisions. But I think a lot, his teachings about attachment and clinging make sense to us in our daily lives. We see that. Things that we cling to, hang on to, always become dukkha. I just have to keep reminding myself to lower my chin. Let your body be relaxed. Be aware of the breath.
Be aware that you're ground. Be aware and sure that you are grounded on the earth. That you're not out in space. That you're here, present. And when your mind wanders and you see that, come back to the breath. Just stay with your breath. Be aware of the body breathing. Focus that awareness of your breath on a spot where you can feel your breath. It can be in your belly, as your belly rises as you inhale and contracts on the exhale. Or it can be around your nostrils, where it's a more subtle sensation. and just relax.
Be aware of each breath in and each breath out. Now as we close our practice, we can send merit and also keep these thoughts for today and all days. May I become at times, both now and forever, a protector for those without protection, a guide for those who have lost their way, a ship for those with an ocean to cross, a sanctuary for those in danger, a lamp for those without light, a place of refuge for those without shelter, and a servant to all in need. By means of this meritorious deed, may I never join with the unwise, only the wise, until the time I attain awakening. So thank you. Thanks for being part of my practice and for being here this morning. And I will see you tomorrow. Uh, I won't be here Sunday because I'm going on a retreat tomorrow and will be and will be leading a meditation and doing other things Sunday morning. So after tomorrow, I'll see you again on Tuesday. So have a beautiful day.